Good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you all this morning. Good morning to all of you worshiping in the upper room. Shout out to you guys as well as those who are following along with us online. Good morning. Good to worship with you this Sunday morning together. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and we are deep into a sermon series. Seven questions that God can't answer. These are questions that only you can answer. These are questions that God actually puts to us or puts to his followers, those who, who engage with Jesus. Jesus shows up in our lives and he asks us questions that are penetrating, that are moving, and that are powerful. And we've been examining some of those questions that he asked of the disciples that we find in the scriptures. And so we are deep into the series. The next series, though, is going to be a blast. I want to already tease it out in front of you, just a reminder for all of you as we get ready for and anticipate the expansion and everything that's happening uh, in relation to our building. Uh, we are going to be worshiping in a tent uh, starting in July. It's going to be an absolute blast. We're going to do tent revival style. We're going to be uh, praying for good weather, start praying ready for good weather, uh, but we're going to have a tent and have a revival experience where we are really uh, steeped in prayer and expectation for what God is doing and will do in and through us, his people. That's coming up in July. Get excited, start praying, and be ready for that. Uh, come 7-7, July 7th, we kick that off. Uh, but right now, today, we continue with seven questions, and specifically the question for this morning, the question that Jesus is going to be asking in the narrative story, is what is your name? What is your name? It's a penetrating question, an important one, and as we find in the story, one that actually can bring a significant amount of difference into our own personal lives. So, this morning, to walk along with one another, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, it's a story that comes out of Luke, one of the Gospels. This is a first-hand eyewitness account. It's from the, the latter part of the Bible. If you have your half sheet, I printed the entire story on the half sheet. You may want to follow along. If you do have your half sheet, you can pull it out. I'm going to be reading the beginning, kind of setting up the question for you by actually going piece by piece through the story. But because there is so much of the story, I'm not going to have it on the screens. So if you want to pull out a Bible, otherwise you can just close your eyes and listen along as I'm going to be reading it to you as well. But this comes out of the Gospel of Luke. It is a story that actually shows up in three different uh, books in the Bible. Three of the different Gospels are first-hand eyewitness accounts. Luke is one of those first-hand eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life, his ministry. And specific to Luke, he's got his own flavor and style like every author does. Luke has a particular appreciation for the details. And Luke is, I have a special heart for Luke because he's long-winded. And for me, that's an occupational hazard. But Luke loves to give more than probably people really want. And so he gets all these juicy details. And specifically, there's some imagery that we're going to be finding out and picking up on as we get into the story. The story is one of the more complicated stories. It appears in three of the Gospels, but it's one of the more controversial ones because it is, is demon possession, okay? And so we're going to be talking a little bit about what that means and what that looks like this morning. It is the healing of the Gerizim demoniac. Big, long, fancy title, The Healing of the Demon-Possessed Man. And we're going to be looking specifically at Luke's version or Luke's account of how this happened. This is Luke chapter 8, starting at the 26th verse. Um, And there are a couple things that as I go where I'm going to pause and highlight some details for you that are richness in the text. So here you go, starting at the 26th verse. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. 
So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes. This is Jesus and his disciples. They have been traveling, and specifically, they have been traveling to the region of the Gerasenes. The region of the Gerasenes is around the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is in ancient Israel, and if you know anything about Israel, even to this modern day, there's not a lot of water around Israel. Uh, it's more of an arid and dry area. And so, the Sea of Galilee is an incredibly important body of water, uh, even to this very day, where towns and commerce were common. They had popped up all along the edge of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is just a really, really big lake. Those of you who are traveling with Pastor Bob in 2020 to Israel, you will literally go on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's beautiful. And it's just this really big lake. We're Wisconsinites. We know about lake country. This is a really big lake. And all around the lake are these towns. Now, these towns have certain profiles as well. You have kind of Jewish towns where Jewish people would be living and working and playing, but then you have non-Jewish towns. You have Greek traders who have come through, and they're spreading the influence of Greek Hellenism, Greek culture. You also have the places where Rome. Uh, Rome was the dominant authority overarching, but they had specific towns where they tended to hang out, outposts, okay? And so you had Jewish towns, and then you had non-Jewish towns filled with Greeks and Romans, The region of the Gerasenes, the town in the area of the Gerasenes, is non-Jewish. Jesus is walking in foreign territory as he takes a step onto this soil. So he's heading to the region of the Gerasenes across the lake of Galilee or from Galilee. Uh, As Jesus was climbing out of the boat... Pause there for a moment. I mentioned already that this is taking place related to the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot of water related to this story, all right? There's a lot of water imagery. Uh, Specifically, Jesus had just traveled across the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the story that happens right before this is where he has a calming of the storm miracle. There's a big storm that whips up. Jesus calms the storm. And the disciples are looking at Jesus like, who is this guy? Holy cow, even the wind and the waves obey this. Who is this guy? And they're questioning and wondering about Jesus, his identity, and who he really is, that even the Sea of Galilee would, would be stilled at his word. And so there's, there's a deep connection here to the backdrop of water. Water will come important as we go along. Just put that and file that back away. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man possessed by demons came to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside of the town. Now, when we hear the term possessed by demons, normally we're thinking like, you know, Emily Rose, the exorcism, you know, people's heads like spinning and stuff like that, right? We we picture Hollywood. Is that fair to say? That largely the world has characterized and, and, and described images around demon possession in this really bizarre ways. I'm not sure where we get that all. But you hit the red box up and you'll find a whole slew of movies out there that, that, that try to point out and describe what demon and demon possession looks like. But when you, when you spend time in the actual Bible, uh, it's not spinning heads, okay? This is not what's happening. When Jesus comes into contact with and approaches someone who is demon-possessed... What the Bible is doing is pointing out that here is a person who is wrestling with dark forces, dark powers, 
evil voices at work in the world and that specifically have seemed to attach themselves to this person. That this person is wrestling with dark forces, dark realities, dark voices that are probing and prodding them in unhealthy and unprofitable directions. Uh, Destructive behaviors. Voices that keep teasing him in one direction or another that really aren't beneficial or helpful for him living his life. As a result, simple things like evil has tangible realities to it. We all know that. Violence, if we listen to the voices that, 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 that encourage and foster violence in our head and in our heart, there are tangible realities to that. You swing at somebody like that's a physical thing. In the same way, there are physical realities being exhibited here. He's homeless. He's naked. He, he has succumbed to, to these voices and these forces of evil at work in the world, and, and it's led him to a physical reality of being naked and homeless. And where does he live? He lives among the... Did you pick it up? Anyone know? Tombs. Tombs, yeah. So he's living among the tombs. That is to say that dark forces and evil associate with death, not life. That evil always seems to point to and meet people to destructive behaviors and habits that, that end and result in death. It's little wonder that this guy is hanging out among the tombs. It's associated with death. I mean, you even keep going. You keep going as he goes in there. He is not only living among the tombs, but the tombs are outside the town. Again, this is something that you already know. How often when you listen to the voices and the powers and the influencers in our world that that seem to invoke destructive behaviors, you end up isolated in the margins, pushed to the edge, outside of town. When you listen to those voices of destructive behavior, you end up losing relationships, putting up walls of defensiveness, pushed outside of town. This all makes very much sense. Simply put, this is a man wrestling, dealing with, so much so that, 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 that it, is, it is more or less consumed and shaped him because of the way that he has just allowed these evil realities just to run rampant in his life. And there are tangible realities when we do that. Now, but notice what happens next. Specifically, as soon as he saw Jesus, as soon as the demon-possessed man saw Jesus, he shrieks and he fell down in front of Jesus. And then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had taken control of the man often. Even when he was placed under guard, put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. A couple things worthy of note. First off, what happens when evil comes into the presence of God? What posture and position did the demon-possessed man take? He shrieked and he fell on his knees, subjugated before the living God. When it comes to evil, coming face to face with Jesus, 
falls on its knees, can't handle it. Jesus is the one in charge. Note also that evil knows who Jesus is. He knows his name. He knows exactly who he is. The disciples had just been seeing and witnessing a miracle of Jesus stilling the storm, and it ends with them saying, who is this man? Here you have a demon, evil, the forces and powers of darkness that are able to look at Jesus and say, you, Jesus, son of the Most High God, I know your name, I know who you are, I know your identity, you are Jesus, son of the Most High God. Jesus, and they understand exactly who he is. Evil knows and is subject to the identity and person of God in Christ. Okay? Keep going. Uh, It talked about the shackles and the chains, and that sometimes the evil had so completely consumed him that he, like, breaks stuff and, like, runs off into the wilderness, and it ends with that line. It says that he had been completely under the demon's power. Now, this is an added layer Okay, Luke's going into all this detail. He's drawing this out. You go to some of the other gospels, they're like, demon-possessed guy came up and saw Jesus, fell on his knees. That's like all you get. But Luke, you get all this extra detail. Because Luke is trying to paint the picture of how completely and significantly evil so quickly and easily completely takes over our lives. And then we get our question. Verse 30, Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. Now, when Jesus asks this question, what is your name? He's not saying, what should I call you? He's not walking up to this guy and saying, you know, what, what, what do I call you? What's your name? So that I know how to refer to you in our conversation we're about to have. That's not what's taking place here. Jesus is walking up to this man who is so wrapped and consumed with the voices and powers of darkness that he goes directly to the man and he says, what is your name? Who are you? What defines you? What is your identity? That's a pretty big question. He's asking a man with all of these voices around him that have been trying to shape and influence his identity who he is, how he behaves, how he looks at himself in the world. And Jesus cuts right through it all and speaks to the man himself. Who are you? What's your identity? What is your name? Now, names are powerful. Names are incredibly powerful in our world and in our lives. When I think of, for example, I'll use my wife's name. When I think of the name Patty and I think of my wife, it conjures up a whole sense. All it takes is her name, and I get a sense of of feelings and thoughts and emotions and experiences and and things that we've done together and and things that we've navigated and the joys and the sorrows. And I get a sense of her character and her attitude and her heart, all with her name. 
I get a sense of her, her person and her identity when I think of her name because that's what a name does. It shapes and brings forward your identity. Later this week, maybe you'll think about service, maybe you'll think about this sermon, and maybe you'll think about me, and you'll think about Pastor Andrew for a moment. And when you do that, you're going to think about me, Pastor Andrew, in relation to how you know me, how you relate to me, what you think about me, my identity. Because it's captured in just my name, Andrew. Who I am. Names are powerful. When the Bible has certain instances where people change their names, they're not just changing a name, what people call them. They're changing their identity. They're changing who they are. That's why name changing is such a big deal in the Bible. It affects not only the person, but it usually has ripple effects into their family and into even sometimes an entire group of people. A nation can be impacted when people's identity shifts and changes. And so when Jesus is walking up to this man, when Jesus engages with this guy and he says, what is your name? What is your identity? He's getting to the heart of the matter. The man's response is legion. Who am I? I am a legion, a a whole host of roiling, boiling emotions and confusion. And I I am a whole host of, of things that are simply crowding out my identity. Sometimes we think of, of demon possession and we think of that the, the person is like gone or something. It's not so much that demon possession is that somebody is, is gone. Demon possession has to do with and there are so many different dark forces and voices that have attached themselves to a person that that person just can't think straight, can't see themselves straight, can't see the world straight because their identity is being crowded out by all of these competing and voices moving around, pushing, pulling, and prodding them. Their identity is, is being forced almost out of themselves by all of these voices. And for those of you who think that the Bible is old school, for those of you who think the Bible doesn't happen today, for those of you who think demon possession was just this weird, trippy thing that, that people misinterpreted in the past, and it's, it's clearly now we have, we have a new understanding, we're far more intelligent, we've evolved somehow, that, that, that demon possession is no longer a thing. Really? You want to tell me that you don't have voices and powers and influencers in this world that are constantly speaking to you and your character, your identity, pushing you and prodding you and pulling you in different directions. Voices that say things like, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're unhappy, you're worthless, you're smart, you're too smart. You're not smart. You're fun. You're not fun. You're not fun at all. You're not mature. You're a mistake. Your mistakes are too big. You never make mistakes. You should buy that. You'll feel better. One more drink. That's no big deal. You're in control. Your life is out of control. You're incompetent. You are guilty. 
You're unlovable, unforgivable, unfavorable. You're a bad parent. You're a bad husband. You're a bad wife. You're a bad person. You're a bad coworker. That was a bad choice. You always make the bad choice. You're tired, so just compromise. It's not worth it. Why bother? They deserve it. They're not worth your time. You're not worth their time. You're not worth anybody's time. I mean, I can go on and on. I got a whole page here. Of voices and influences running loose in our world that are constantly attacking and trying to crowd out your identity, who you are, that make you forget your name. For us who have had Jesus show up in our lives, for those of us who have an understanding of Jesus, who have wrestled with this question, what's your name? What's your identity? Who are you? Our identity, for those of us who are Christian persons, uh, is, really begins starts in a specific place, a, a point in which we can point to and say, okay, I have all these competing voices trying to crowd out my sense of identity, but this is who I am. This is what defines me. This is where my name is established. And for us Christians, that happens in the waters of baptism. For us, when we become a baptized person, That is the moment where God grafts us into his family, where he adopts us, where he looks at each one of us and through the waters of baptism says, you're mine. In fact, on the baptismal banners, those of you who are little ones, who have little ones, or have experienced the baptism as a little one, when we put on our banners, we put on there a a verse from Isaiah. It's a verse where God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, I have called you by name. You are mine. That's the verse that we put on the baptismal banner. Because we want you to know, we want you to understand that in the waters of baptism, your name is established, it is anchored, it is firm and secure in the person of God. That you have been adopted and now bear His name as His child. When the voices and the attacks of darkness try to challenge you and influence you and change you, we as Christians stand up and say, Oh, sorry, man, ain't happening here. I am a baptized son or daughter of the living God. That's who I am. That's my name, Andrew, son of the living God. That's my name. And I'm not going to allow these wickedness and voices to ever take that from me. In fact, it's beautiful in the story itself, in in the the narrative. Um, The demons are afraid of of being cast into the bottomless pit. That's the term. But if if you go to the original language, the bottomless pit, uh, some of the other translations are abyss. I like the word abyss better, um, the Greek, because 
Uh, it connotates deep waters. It sometimes is translated as deep waters. The demons are afraid of being drowned in deep waters. Later on in the New Testament, through some letters, uh, a pastor named Paul will write to churches and he will tell people about what it's like to be a Christian. It means that your old self is drowned in the waters of baptism and that you are resurrected and made new and alive in Jesus. That the waters of baptism wash away and, and keep at bay all of those voices in darkness and define you now according to Jesus Christ. So it's a little wonder that the, the demons are actually afraid of the water. And in this bizarre, weird twist, as you, you read the story, Jesus casts the demons into pigs. He says, you go into the pigs, and the demons go in, the legion goes into the pigs. Do you know what happens to the pigs? The pigs get all scared, and there's this commotion that happens, and they, the Bible says they run down the bank, and they run straight into the water. And they are drowned. Drowned in the waters. Because evil cannot handle. They cannot stand. They are subservient to the power of Jesus' words connected with water. That's why baptism is so important. If you're not baptized, we're going to have a baptism later today. I'm pumped. I want to invite you to lean into that. Ask us about it. We would love to baptize you or somebody that, that you know who would be interested. Because this is what shapes and anchors our identity and, and keeps us strong when the voices of darkness run rampant in our world. The way that the story ends, the man is healed. He desires now to follow Jesus. The Bible says that he's sitting at Jesus' feet, perfectly sane in his right mind, clothed, it even says. And you begin to see how he is now moved from living in and among the tombs, homeless and naked, and being this raving person to someone who is composed, thoughtful, clothed, healthy, and desires to follow Jesus. Ironically, Jesus says, look, to follow me, ironically, I send you back out. That's what it means to follow me, is not to literally follow me, but to be sent out into the lives of others. And so he says, go. I'm not going to take you with me. I'm sending you to your home. I'm sending you back to your village. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them everything that God has done for you. It's the only other time Jesus speaks in the entire narrative is at the very end. He says, what is your name? And the other time he says, Go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. The new identity that has been established, the new reality that has been grounded in this man is that he bears Jesus' name and power into the lives of other people. He is defined not by these voices or even his past, what he did under their influence. He is now defined by everything God has done for him. Everything God has done for him. 
The same is true for you and me. You. You are defined. Your identity is anchored. Your person and your name, it is grounded in what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. His grace, His love, His forgiveness, His compassion for you. His name, which He now gives to you. As we think to that question, what is your name? Who are you? What's your identity? We as Christian people say, we are beloved, forgiven children of the Most High God. And let me tell you everything that He has done for me and for you. Because that's who I am. That's who you are. Let's close with prayer. Please pray with me. Gracious Christ, we give thanks that you come into this world and rather than sit passively by, you come to us and you rescue us, you heal us, you free us from the voices and the pressures and the powers of darkness that are just running rampant in our world and in our own personal lives. We pray this morning that we would have a renewed sense of our identity, our name, in the way in which you have joined your name to our person. You have adopted us and claimed us that in the waters of baptism we are known as yours and that evil cannot withstand it. Help us go forth secure and confident to tell others of everything that you have done for us. Thank you. Thank you that we could bear your name as your people. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.